So it's Acts 9, 32 to 43 for a sermon I've entitled Health and Life in Jesus' Name. Why don't you follow along as I read? Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years and he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. Immediately he got up. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called uh, um, uh, Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, Do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room. uh, um, And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and the garments that Dorcas used to make them while she was still with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. It became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. You know, years ago, I got an email from someone who was interested in attending our church, but she said she had a few questions she wanted to ask me before they visited that Sunday morning. Her first question was this, what is the gospel that you preach? I told her that the good news that I preach, our church presents, is the truth that God sent his son into the world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth to live a life of perfect obedience to God and then to offer up that life as a sacrifice for sins on the cross. Now, his sacrifice was shown to be acceptable to God when God raised them from the dead three days later. And so as a result, anyone who turns from their sins and turns to Christ in faith, believing his death paid for their sins, will receive forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift from God. Now, I have to say, though, when she first asked me that question, I thought, well, duh, Jesus Christ crucified. What else would you preach? But then I thought, that's actually a very good question. Because there's a lot of pastors preaching a different gospel. You ever heard of the health and wealth gospel? It's also known as prosperity theology or the gospel of success. Wikipedia actually does a good job defining the health and wealth gospel as this. It's a religious belief among some charismatic Christians that financial blessings and physical well-being are always the will of God for them and that faith and positive speech and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. Material and especially financial success is seen as a sign of divine favor. Now, the roots of this health and wealth gospel go all the way back to the 1900s. One of the pioneers in the movement was a Baptist minister named E.W. Kenyon, who taught that Jesus' death secured for the believer the right to divine healing. According to historian Kate Bowler, Kenyon taught that this healing was attained through positive, faith-filled speech. The spoken word of God allows the believer to appropriate the same spiritual power that God used to create the world and attain the provisions promised in Christ's death and resurrection. Prayer was understood to be binding, a binding and legal act. Rather than asking, Kenyon taught believers to demand healing since it's already legally, they're already legally entitled to it. Now, sometimes you'll hear the televangelists 
talk about name it and claim it. Just tell God that you want a red Corvette and then claim it in the name of Jesus and he'll give it to you. There's three fundamental beliefs that underline this whole movement. First of all, the idea that it's never God's will for you to be sick or suffer. Secondly, that God wants you to have success and financial prosperity. And third, if you have enough faith, God will grant you what you want, but you need to send in a little seed money donation to the televangelist to get the process going. You can see why a message like that would be popular, especially with Americans. I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy and wealthy and successful? But are these prosperity preachers right? Is it true that it's never God's will to have physical and ailments and disabilities? Do you remember when Moses protested to God that he couldn't go as God's spokesman because he couldn't speak well? God responded by saying, who's made a man's mouth? Or who makes him deaf or mute or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Is healing guaranteed if you just have enough faith? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul speaks of suffering what he called a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know exactly what it is, but many suspect that Paul was actually losing his eyesight. Whatever it was, it was something negative, and Paul wanted God to remove it. So he said this, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Was the problem that Paul lacked faith? No, it was that God intended to leave him in that condition, knowing that that weakness that he experienced would show God's power in his life even more clearly. That's why he went on to write this, Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might dwell in me. Therefore, I am well contented with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because when he's weak, that's the time he has to trust God. Does God intend for all of his followers to be materially wealthy? I mean, writing to people who were impressed with wealth, James asked this, Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? James 2.5 And as far as never suffering, Jesus said it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, considering all of what I just said, it might surprise you that I titled my sermon Health and Life in the name of Jesus. But here, in the last part of chapter 9, we have two miraculous healings performed by the hand of Peter. Uh, these healings were physical in nature, but they point to an even greater spiritual healing that's performed in the name of Jesus. And so today, to see how Jesus can transform lives through his power, we want to consider this portion of God's word. So let's pray and then get into the text. Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Open up our hearts and minds to respond so that we can be transformed and become people that are pleasing in your sight. So bless us now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Luke, the author of the book of Acts, open up the first chapter of this book by referring back to the gospel that he wrote. He said this, he said, The first account I composed, Theophilus, was about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now Luke's implying that he's writing now an account of what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach, meaning through the apostles and the people in the church. Jesus performed miraculous signs, including raising people from the dead. Here, Peter is going to follow his master's example and both heal a man who was paralyzed and raise a woman who was dead, both done through the power of Jesus' name. So what do we see in the text? Well, the first thing we see is a bedridden man, and that's verses 32 to 34, a bedridden man, and secondly, a good-hearted woman, and that's 35 to 43. So bedridden man. The first followers of Jesus, you know, focus almost all their energy and attention on their countrymen who were living in Jerusalem. 
That was until the persecution broke out after Stephen's stoning, which caused the followers of Jesus to scatter to the villages around. And so there were pockets of believers throughout the many villages and towns. In fact, in verse 31, right before our text, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they continued to increase. Now, no doubt, because he was concerned about uh, how the people were doing and wanted to see them, Peter was traveling, it says, through all those regions. He came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Now, by the way, the city of Lydda was known in the Old Testament as Lod. Uh, it's about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the city's still there today. It's got a mixed Arab and Jewish population. Interesting historical footnote on this. Cassius, the Roman governor of Syria, about 75 years before this, had sold the whole city into slavery. But then two years later, Mark Antony, uh, the one-time lover of Cleopatra, freed them. Well, here in our story, there's a man who needed to be freed from a difficult situation. Look what it says. They found a man there named Aeneas who had been bedridden for eight years for he was paralyzed. Now, we don't know for certain whether this man was a believer or not, most likely because they found him among the followers of Jesus. But whatever his spiritual state, his physical state, was not good. He'd been laying in his bed for eight years. Let me ask a question. What's the longest you've ever been bedridden? 24 hours with the flu? A couple of days after surgery? You know, it used to be that when women went into the hospital to have a baby, they stayed a whole week. I came across a hospital bill from 1963, which is the year I was born. Listen to the itemized um, costs that were listed. $11 a day for the hospital room. $4 a day to have the baby in the nursery. The delivery room service was only $15, and the anesthesia was $2. The medicine they gave the baby was $0.10, and the total bill was about $120. Now today, the average bill, if you go into the hospital to have a baby, is $18,000. Insurance will pay for most of it, but you're going to have to expect about $3,000 out of pocket. And that's after being there only one or perhaps two days. Well, how did Aeneas end up in this condition? I mean, was it a workplace accident? Did he get thrown from a horse? Remember the name Christopher Reeves? He was the actor who played Superman in a number of movies in the late 70s and 80s. At 42 years of age, he was thrown from a horse and broke his spinal cord that left him paralyzed and only able to make small movements with his fingers and also to be on a ventilator. Or was it possible that this was like a long-term debilitating disease? In one of the restaurants I managed, I had a young guy working for me. His name was Johnny, Johnny Udo. He was a cook, a good worker and whatnot, but I noticed over time that he started to slow down. And every time there wasn't something going on, he was sitting down. It wasn't because he was lazy, it was because he was in a lot of pain. At 21 years of age, Johnny was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. The last time I saw him was at a graduation party. He was in a wheelchair with both of his hands knotted completely closed. He's unable to walk or even go to the bathroom without help. Well, today, there's much help for people with disabilities. There's medicine, physical therapy, corrective surgeries. But at that time, there was none of that. You didn't even have Social Security. So I don't, I don't know how he handled this emotionally. I mean, some people become bitter and resentful when bad things come into their life. Perhaps he had worked through it all, though, and understood that this difficult life was the lot God had given him. I have to tell you, a good portion of your happiness and contentment of life is not what happens to you, but how you interpret and respond what happens to you. 
Well, perhaps after eight years, he expected to live the rest of his life as an invalid. But Jesus had other plans for him. Look what it says. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, make your bed. And it says immediately he got up. By the way, didn't Jesus perform a similar miracle? Remember when he was in the house teaching and the place was packed and there was a couple guys who brought their friend who was a paralytic. But they couldn't get through the doors because there were so many people there. So they came up with a clever idea. He said, hey, let's go up on top of the house and, and dig down through the tiles and lower them down by ropes right in front of Jesus. Oh, that's a great idea. It says that they let him down through the tiles with the stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Seeing his faith, or their faith, Jesus said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees began reasoning, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus said, aware of their reasoning, and answered to them, Why is your reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen a remarkable thing today. Well, the people in Lydda that day also saw a remarkable thing. A man who had been bedridden for eight years was restored to perfect health. Did Aeneas go out into the streets and the marketplace afterwards? Did he grab everyone who passed by and said, Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me? Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me? Go and tell the story of the Christ of Calvary. Go and tell the story of the Christ of Calvary. He'll forgive your sins and he'll save your soul. He'll cleanse your heart and he'll make you whole. Go and tell the story of the Christ of Calvary. Now we know he went and told the story because we read in verse, read in verse 25, or 35, it says this, And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. You see, before the power of Jesus' name was demonstrated that day, this man had been bedridden, but more importantly, the people in that city had been soul sick. Both needed to be healed. And God did it. You know, as a Christian, that's the way it should be for us as well. We should want people to see what God has done for us and with us and in us so that they also would want to turn to the Lord. You know, Jesus can not only heal our bodies, but also our souls. He can also heal our broken relationships and sometimes our broken hearts. And no matter how long you've been struggling, paralyzed by guilt and sin, fear, discouragement, disappointment, Jesus can turn everything around in just one day as completely as he did for Aeneas. The first display of Jesus' power was in a bedridden man. The next involves a good-hearted woman. A long time forgotten, our dreams that just fell by the way. And the good life he promised ain't what she's living today. But she never complains of the bad times and the bad things he has done. She just talks about the good times they had and all the good times to come. She's a good-hearted woman in love with a good time and man. She loves him in spite of his ways that she don't understand. Through teardrops and laughters, they'll pass through the world hand in hand. A good-hearted woman loving a good time and man. But you know, as that song goes on, you find out that good time and man's a low-down scallywag who's cheating on his wife. Well, there, there's a good-hearted woman in Joppa, about 10 miles from where Peter was in Lydda. We read about her starting in verse 36. It says, Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated into Greek is called Dorcas. Now at one time, a lot of baby girls were given names of flowers. 
Iris, Petunia, Daisy, Rose, Jasmine, Poppy, Skunk Cabbage. Well, maybe not that one. That is a flower, though. Tabitha is uh, Aramaic, and Dorcas is Greek, but both mean gazelle. And you've heard that saying, graceful as a gazelle? Well, Tabitha was certainly full of grace and evidently a hard worker to boot. Look what it says. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity that she was continually doing. And it came about that at that time she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body and laid her in an upper room, since uh, Lydda was, uh, was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. Now Aeneas was bedridden, but Tabitha was being put in a coffin soon. And she was not just mostly dead, she was all the way dead. And at that time, they didn't have refrigeration for morgues. They didn't embalm bodies like the Egyptians, so the funerals were usually done on the same day. But knowing that Peter was in the area, they sent for him. Now it's interesting because some of the commentators think that uh, they were simply asking Peter to come, hoping that he would do the funeral. I mean, this was a woman of noble character who had made an impression on him, and they thought they should have someone of status who did the funeral. I don't think that's the point. I think the whole point was they were asking Peter to come and raise her from the dead, which shows a whole lot of faith. Well, it says in verse 39, so Peter rose and went with them. By the way, if he was walking 10 miles, 3 miles an hour, take him probably about 3 hours, of course, assuming he didn't stop at Starbucks. But uh, when he arrived, it says, they brought him into the upper room and all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with him. By the way, in America, in our country, it's customary when you have a funeral to put up picture boards with photos of the deceased from various times in their lives. Oh, look, there's her baby picture. She had such black, curly hair. Oh, here she is sitting on the pony. I think they had that horse for like 30 years. Oh, here's the first day of kindergarten. Another one of her piano recital. High school graduation, college, wedding pictures. They're all there. And if that person ever won some kind of contest or award, the ribbons are put out and the newspaper clippings are there. I remember going to one funeral where... As I looked at the picture board, almost every single picture of the guy was a picture with him with a beer can in his hand. I thought it was kind of sad but appropriate because he died drunk. Well, there weren't any photographs of Tabitha that day. The camera hadn't been invented yet. But there were some broken-hearted people, many widows, who came to pay their respects and testify to the grace of God that had come through her, this good-hearted woman. I imagine saying things like, look at the beautiful dress she made for my granddaughter's wedding. Oh, look at the intricate beadwork. I have to tell you, whenever I read this story, I actually think of my own mom. Uh, my mom was a really good seamstress. She used to sew the uh, clothes for us kids when we were growing up. We didn't have a lot of money. And uh, she made the wedding dresses and the bridesmaids' dresses for my sister's weddings, and I had six sisters. With nine kids, she always found that the best time for her to sew was to get up early in the morning. And I remember many times hearing the, the sewing machine hum at four or five o'clock in the morning. She got towards the end of her life, though. She didn't have kids to sew for her. And he, she did some for the grandkids. But she started to sew things and blankets and all kinds of stuff for women's shelters and for uh, nursing homes and for missionary organizations. And she has stuff that she sewed that's probably in 15 different countries. You know, Luke told us already that... Oh, by the way, just a side note. When my mom died, we put on her gravestone uh, a sewing machine carved in. 
Well, Luke's already told us that Tabitha was a woman abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. No doubt, this self-sacrificing service came from the overflow of the joy that she had in Jesus, expressing itself in love for others. We sing that hymn that says, For not with swords loud clashing, nor stir of rolling drums, but with deeds of love and kindness, the heavenly kingdom comes. You know, it's certainly true that we're not saved because of our good deeds. But it's just as true that we're saved to do good deeds. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. You, you can't earn it. It says, but Paul goes on to say this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Titus 3, 11 to 14 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing in the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Listen to the last line. Zealous for good deeds. Speaking to his followers, Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp to put it under a basket, but he puts it on a lampstand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So living a life of service, doing good to others, is something that might be applauded by most Americans, but it's very, one that very few people actually engage in. I mean, think about it. We live in a consumer society where all businesses cater to every one of our needs to get our money. And so even in most churches, people come and they see themselves mainly as customers, consumers of religion rather than workers, producers of righteousness. Quoted a moment ago from Paul's letter to Titus. Titus was on the island of Crete uh, to oversee the churches there. Uh, the people there didn't have a great reputation. Even today, to call somebody a Cretan is an insult. It means you're saying that they're stupid and vulgar, an insensitive person, a clod, a lout. Well, evidently, that reputation for the Cretans was well-deserved because Paul wrote this. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they might be sound in faith. So three or four times in that letter, Paul presses home to Titus the need to teach the people to engage in doing good deeds. He says in 3.14, he says, Our people must learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. Like evil beasts, lazy glutton cretans, self-centered, self-indulgent, self-focused, materialistic Americans, and even American Christians also need to learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that we won't be unfruitful. Let me ask you a question at this point. Would your family members, co-workers, and friends describe you as a person who's abounding with good deeds and kindness and charity, which you continually do? Would they say, now there is a guy who's zealous for good deeds. Would they say, now she's definitely a woman who really shines and as a result of all the good she does, people are glorifying God. I mean, think about it. Which would you rather have someone say at your funeral, to your children. Hey, your dad was sure a great softball player. He hit the winning run when we took the tournament back in 2010. Or, you know, your dad was instrumental in me coming to faith. He was the one person I knew I could count on when I needed help. And it's not just that we do good to others when we engage in a life of self-sacrifice. We're doing good for ourselves. 
We're actually investing for our own eternal happiness. Some of the last words that Jesus spoke in the Bible are found in Revelation 22, 12, where it says this, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to his deeds. Hebrews 6, 10 says this, God is not just. He will not forget your work and love that you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. Galatians 6, 9-10 says this, Let us not become weary of well-doing, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Tabitha lived in service, and she died in faith. But in a moment, she was going to live again. Look what it says in 40-41. to Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up and he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and the widow, he presented her alive. Now again, Luke intends for us to see a parallel between this story, healing story, and the one with Jesus, uh, with Jairus' daughter. Remember, he gets called and she, they're coming. They say, she's really sick, but halfway through, they say, oh, she already died. Tell me, doesn't need to come. Jesus said, just believe just fully. And he gets there and he says he had everyone get out of the room and just the mom and the dad were there. He says he reaches down and he says to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, arise. Notice the parallels. In each case, the people are sent out of the room. In Peter's case, he kneels down to pray, but Jesus simply commands. The command Jesus gives is Talitha kum, little girl, arise. Peter says Tabitha, which was her name, arise. Same command, Arise, same result, they do. Both experience health and life in Jesus' name. But again, listen carefully. It's vastly more important than Tabitha coming back to physical life was the wonderful news of the scores of people who came to possess eternal life. Look what it says in 42. It became known to all in Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. By the way, what do you suppose Tabitha did after being raised from the dead? No doubt she went right back to work, helping the widows, serving the saints, and shining brightly for Jesus so that his name could be glorified. What are you living for? Are you living for comfort? I mean, that won't last. Someday when you get old, your life is going to be hard and uncomfortable. You're going to be in a nursing home needing help to do just about anything. Are you living for the pleasures of this world? They give a temporary fizz of happiness, but they don't give lasting joy, do they? Are you living for ego and self-aggrandizement? In 1966, at the height of Beatlemania, John Lennon did an article or an interview with the London Standard newspaper. In it, he was quoted as saying this, Christianity will go. It will vanish and shrink. I need, argue, need not argue about this. I am right, and I will be proved right. We're more popular now than Jesus, and I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. But you know, on December 8th, 1980, about 11 o'clock at night, John Lennon was walking home when a man named Mark David Chapman came up behind him and fired four shots from his pistol in Lennon's back. He staggered halfway up the steps, and he died. He was 42 years old at the time. A few years back when I was working at the dairy, I asked all my coworkers, do you know who John Lennon is? Have you ever heard that name? And most of them said, no. 43 years have passed since that night. Both rock and roll and Christianity are still here, but Lennon's gone and Christianity is definitely going to outlast rock and roll. 
One life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Spiritual health and eternal life are only found in Jesus. Do you have that life? Do you have that health? If not, ask God to give it to you. Because he is abundant in mercy for anyone who would call out for grace. Just call out. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for stories like this. There's still some miraculous events that take place, but not like these, Lord, at least not very often. But these were symbolic also, Lord, because it did bring life and health to people who were spiritually dead, to those who heard. Father, we pray for all who are here today and for all who are going to be listening over the internet and the radio broadcasts that you would open up their hearts and minds and restore health to them, that they would trust Jesus and find the grace that no one else can provide. So bless us to that end, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to close by singing hymn uh, 202. 202, song about Jesus' name. Why don't you stand while we sing this? Amen.